Hello, I'm Katie Derham, and welcome to Expect Better, a brand new podcast series from Coots, which looks at the thrills and spills of life through a wealth lens. Now, throughout this series, I'm going to be talking to some fascinating guests from the worlds of entertainment and business and charity as we explore the different attitudes towards wealth, what it means to have it and to use it for ourselves and those we care about. And as life is both precious and unpredictable, I'll also be chatting to them about the real challenges that wealth and indeed life at large can present, from using your money for the greater good and future-proofing against unexpected health issues, maybe, to the F word, family, talking money with kids. My guests are going to be sharing their inspiring stories and offering insights to help us navigate our own journeys and to help us expect better of life. We're going to kick off this series with the topic of giving back. Whether giving time or money, there has been an increase in people wanting to support the causes they care passionately about. And my guests today certainly know a thing or two about that very subject. You'll be familiar with my first guest, an extremely successful songwriter, musician, lyricist and broadcaster. He's collaborated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, having written the lyrics to Starlight Express and co-written the lyrics to Phantom of the Opera, among a long list of achievements across stage and radio and TV. He's also known for his charitable work and fundraising, setting up the Alchemy Foundation more than 20 years ago. So welcome to Sir Richard Stilgo. And joining us as well is Rachel Harrington, head of the Coots Institute. Before we start, I'd like to ask you the icebreaker question that I'm going to be asking all our guests. In 10 words or less, what does wealth mean to you? Sir Richard, over to you. Uh, if I was going to be pompous, which I probably will be quite a lot in the next half an hour, I would go back to the old English wheel, which is where wealth comes from. Uh, which means in possession of good fortune and happiness. And I think that's nice. That is a lovely definition. Rachel, how about you? Hi, Katie. I think in all the work I've been doing at Coots, my observation is that wealth means security and opportunity for you and your family, of course, but also for the causes and the communities that really matter to you. And I'm sure that's more than 10 words as well, but I'm hoping you'll let me off. (laughs) Well, both of you have given, I think, very interesting definitions there and a very good way to kick off the discussion. Uh, I think that today we're going to be really focusing on what to do when you're blessed with wealth, when you want to give back. Philanthropy is our subject today. And I know this is a very important part of your life and uh, and your work, Richard. So let's start at the beginning, and uh, if I may, with you, Richard, and ask how you got to this happy point where you can be philanthropic. Let's go back to the beginning. We know you, of course, as a wonderful entertainer, but uh, when did the money start rolling in? In the 60s, I sang songs on the radio. Then in the 70s, I sang songs on the television. And then I wrote songs for companies and sang them all over the place and went round the normal sort of thing of singing songs to people. And then as a result of that, I met Andrew Lloyd Webber and he needed an opening number for Cats because T.S. Eliot, great poet, but hadn't written an opening number like many great poets. And um, then we did Starlight Express, and then I did about half a Phantom of the Opera. And obviously that made, that made a ridiculous amount of money, frankly. I mean, you asked at the beginning about wealth. I think wealth is having more money than you actually need. And I found myself in this, yeah, glorious position of actually having more than I needed. So Annabelle, my wife, and I thought we should do something about this. We were slightly inspired as well by Michael Burke and Ethiopia in 1984, which changed a lot of people's attitudes to things. And also, of course, because being on Nationwide, and that's life, you get asked 
into special schools to open the fate and into all, and care homes and all sorts of places, and you meet a bit of the world that you didn't know existed. And you think, this isn't fair. And particularly in special schools, they never did any music, and I thought that wasn't fair. So I started doing something about that, and Annabelle and I started trying to give some money away, which we did really badly to begin with, uh, hysterically and sentimentally. And so after a bit, we thought, well, we must do this better. And I think that's what this whole podcast is about. It's not about whether you should give away or shouldn't. It's about trying to do it as well as you can. Which is the perfect time to ask Rachel Harrington about how you help people like Richard give their money away effectively at Coots Institute. Tell us what happens there. I think what Richard was just describing really beautifully is is the, the point that wealth doesn't get created in a vacuum. You know, it, it always comes with emotions and hopes and fears attached. And at some point people start asking the question about, well, what's this all for? You know, what's the meaning of of this wealth that I've created? And my job really is to help people find an answer to that question. Sometimes it's about um, thinking about the family and how you might start talking to your kids about wealth and what that means and what you would like them to do with it. And I know that's something you'll be exploring um, in a later episode. But a big focus is on helping people give back in a way that is effective, but also a really enjoyable experience as well. And there are over 160,000 charities in the UK alone. And when you're just trying to start out, that can be pretty mind-boggling. So what I do is help people understand the the causes that they're really interested in, understand what charities do in those areas and, and what help might be needed and help them create a bit of an action plan and also meet other like-minded souls who who might share the same passions and interests as them. Um, So as jobs go, it's pretty good fun. (laughs) Have you found that in the last few months with the pandemic that there's been an awful lot more activity in the philanthropic world? Have people really been kicked into action? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, obviously we've seen um, the role that charities have had to play in the emergency response to COVID um, and helping us all through that. But it's also highlighted, I think, just what a key part of the, of the fabric of our world um, charities are, you know, from, from the arts to medical research to making sure that no one is lonely and, and isolated. And at the moment, it's really a bit of you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You know, charities are predicting that they could lose four billion in income over this summer. And especially smaller charities might not survive this this crisis um, and we'll all be the poorer for it if they don't. So I think people have realised this year that giving is is more important than ever. Um, and we've seen people really stepping up, whether that's giving more through an existing charitable trust they might have, starting to give if they haven't done already, or even pivoting what their business does to make a difference to some of the, the problems that they're seeing. Coming back to you, Sir Richard, you talked about wanting to be more efficient, more effective, less sentimental with the way you were giving money back. You set up a foundation to do that. Tell us a bit about how that now works. First of all, do what you think you might know something about. I mean, I I get involved with a lot of musical charities. We started one called the Orpheus Centre, which does music with disabled people, which is a college for young disabled people. Um, My dad was a water engineer, and I was told very, very early on how important and simple clean water for everybody is. So we do a lot with water aid. But I think the main thing that the foundation does, we, we used to get very glossy brochures from charities, which weren't always from the best charities. And we used to get badly written, badly spelt letters from other charities, which often were the most deserving. So we got interested in the whole business of fundraising and how it's done well. We now have a thing called the Alchemist Scheme. We have eight alchemists who are fundraisers, and we give eight different charities 
a restricted donation which must be spent on a fundraiser's salary, because sometimes a small charity can't afford a fundraiser. And those eight, all in, quite diverse, all over, the, all over the charitable sector, they raise between them about 10 times what it costs us. So it looks as though we give away 10 times as much money, which, of course, we don't. And they, of course, have had a really difficult time during lockdown. Um, so we find out about the changes in fundraising mainly through them, because it has... Yeah, I think, I think people have felt kinder towards each other towards the beginning of lockdown. I'm not sure that's still the case now with mask denial and things. I think people are a bit fed up with it now and are a bit slightly returning to normal, which is a pity. So going back to when you set up the foundation, did that immediately make you feel as if your money was being uh, controlled in a more rigorous fashion? And, and how did that structure work? Oh, I mean, that, that is such a good question, because I think a lot of the people who are likely to give money away have made it by working hard and being really efficient. And they have a suspicion that charities aren't as efficient as that. It's mostly not true, actually. I mean, it's because it's a sector that's always struggling for money, it actually has to be really efficient. To begin with, we weren't as good until we started finding out more about the charities that we gave to and getting more involved with them. Finding out, for instance, well, it's a simple thing, that if you give 500 quid this year to a charity, that's fine. Next year they apply again, the year after they apply again. If you give 500 quid and say, we'll give it you next year and the year after, then that's some of next year's budget is dealt with. And that sort of consistency does help them an awful lot. What kind of uh, work do you find you're helped with by the likes of the Coots Institute? How is that relationship helping you give back in a more effective way? We've been doing this for 35 years. What would have been useful would be 35 years ago to have gone, gone to something like the Coots Institute, found out about, for instance, we started a foundation. We didn't know how. We had to find out how, and Rachel would have been able to tell us exactly how to do that, how to involve friends as trustees, children as trustees. Really important, I think. The more you ask your children about this, the more modern views you get about how you should be helping and what you should be doing. Um, and, yeah, Annabelle's and my children are all heftily involved in it, which, which they love and they, they take a great pride in. How has it made you feel over the years, Richard, to be able to give back so much? Um, and the tempting thing to say is smug. I don't think, it, I don't think, it's, quite as, I don't think it's quite as bad as that, but it does make you sleep better. Um, most people who bank at Coots must, if they're honest, admit to being have been lucky at some point. And this is all about the lucky helping the unlucky. And if the lucky help the unlucky, it just evens things up a bit. Were there any particular highlights, any particular moments and memories over the last 30-odd years that you've been doing this, of times when you thought, I'm so delighted I've managed to, to help that particular project or that particular person? Because of my dad being a water engineer and my granddad being a water engineer, we support WaterAid a lot. And we go off with WaterAid to see the work being done. There is nothing like standing in a remote village in Uganda and watching a tap produce clean water for the very first time in that village and thinking somewhere in the world that tap is being turned on because somebody is singing music of the night in a language that I don't understand to a group of people I've never met. And that is just such a happy equation to be able to be part of. How much roughly of your income do you think you give away? Um... That would be boasting. Fair enough, but a, a large proportion. 
It's entirely up to people. We try and give away the foreign royalties and keep the English royalties on the whole, and it it works out at about half and half. And presumably that's the sort of discussion that you must have with the family all the time. I mean, are they all pretty aligned to how much of the, the family business is, is, is going back into the charity? The grandchildren all have shoes. We don't, we don't starve of this. We, we live in a nice place and we go on nice holidays and things. But, but there's a point at which, actually, you have to admit that turning on the tap in Uganda is more fun than having a Lamborghini. And less dangerous. Rachel Harrington, as you listen to Richard talking about his experiences, does this sound familiar to the other people you work with at the Coots Institute? Is this a kind of quite a, uh, a common journey, a common set of feelings? Oh, there, there's so much that, that resonates, yes. I mean, philanthropy, I think, is, is one of the most personal things that you can do. It's so core to your own values and your own life experiences. So, of course, everyone's journey through this will be unique, but there are those common themes that come through, that sense of the enjoyment that you can get from knowing that you've had that ripple effect in the world that that could well outlast you, Um, the enjoyment of of bringing family together to be involved in something that that means something to you, and also that sort of learning journey that, that you go on you know, starting somewhere and, and taking baby steps to, to figuring out what your strategy is. I mean, as a journalist, you'll sort of know that the keys to any great news story are, you know, who, what, why, when, where and how. And, and that's not a bad place to start on your giving journey either. You know, figure out why you want to give, what's, what's driving you. Think about the people, the places and the causes that have chimed with you in your life, or as Richard said, that that you know something about and and can go in um, with your eyes open. You know, when do you want to give? Is it all before, you know, before you shuffle off the mortal coil so that you can see it and enjoy it? Or do you want something that might outlive you? And then professional advisors, as Richard said, can can help you with the how. You know, do you want to set up your own charitable trust? Um, You know, what kinds of organisations do you want to give and and how much of your money and your time are you able to put into that journey? So, yes, it's, um, it's, it's quite a familiar and common journey, but each one will have its little special twists and turns. If anybody listening to this has got money they'd like to give away, is there a sort of a a starting point, an amount at which it makes sense to set up a trust as opposed to doing some standing orders to your favourite charities every month through your regular bank account? Uh, Probably, because setting up your own charitable trust does come with um, some necessary admin and, and, and transparency and reporting to the charity commission and so on. So you're probably looking at you know, a few hundred thousand upwards um, as a lump sum to to sort of help that make sense. But there are lots of ways that you can create some structure around your giving um, for more modest amounts, whether that's using someone like the Charities Aid Foundation or even your local community foundation, which helps people give locally. And really, I mean, I often think that effective giving is is about the intention and not just about the amount. You know, a thousand pounds given thoughtfully can have more impact, especially on a small charity than a million pounds given quite carelessly and especially when it comes to getting your kids involved in giving as well that's it's a really great way to start some of those potentially thorny conversations about what wealth is and what it means to you know give a child some money at Christmas or their birthday that they can donate to a charity of their choice um, or encouraging them to give some of their pocket money away to, to things that matter to them I mean, there are charities of all shapes and sizes in the UK um, so even small donations can make a big difference. There's a really good thing called First Give, which the Pears Foundation, I think, started, which is teenagers giving for the first time. And again, getting it, getting into that culture. 
can't start too early. Richard, I'm sure you agree with Rachel. It's not about how huge the sum is. It's about how you direct it. Yeah, if you think you understand where it's going. One other aspect of this, I know a couple of other people who suddenly, like me, um, got lots of money they weren't expecting. In my case, it was because, because of musicals, but in their case, they'd started a business and then they sold it to somebody else and they made an awful lot of money. And both of them divided it in half, kept half, and gave half away to a charitable foundation. And they have enjoyed the giving away just as much as they enjoyed the starting and the generating of the business. And they are, yeah, they're much happier people as a result. Um, it's a really good time for Rachel and Coots to be getting in touch with clients, is that point where suddenly, like a young man I read about in the papers this morning, who had started a website and sold the website or his share in it for 18 million quid, and he's only 18, he needs help with making sure that 18 million quid makes him a happy young man and not a dead one because he bought himself a sports car and went over a cliff. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Richard. We see a lot of clients who have had that big event where they've, they've put blood, sweat and tears into building a successful business and then sell it often for more money than they ever thought they would receive. And then, you know, there's only so many rounds of golf you can play. It's very weird having an empty diary for the first time in your life and, and figuring out who you are now. You're not, you know, the, the person who's running that business. And so often philanthropy becomes almost that second career, that fulfilling way of, of spending your time and, and meeting so many interesting people, going to interesting places and challenging your thinking um, that gives you often the same buzz that you got from being successful in business. Annabelle and I have a really interesting time reading all the appeals that come in, follow them up. And we get 60, 70 letters a week, I guess, which she goes through. And particularly, I mean, she was 18 years on the youth bench. So spent an awfully long time dealing with young people with real, real problems and challenges and finding solutions for that. So it gives her a terrifically good grounding for where the money might go and where it might help best. When you first started having the sort of money that you could get involved with give, giving it away as well, Richard, I mean, how did you divvy up your time? You were still working very hard at that point. I know you still work now. Uh, to Rachel's point of suddenly coming into money and then wondering what to do with it, wondering what to do with your time, how did you divide up your diary? Well, another definition of wealth would be having control over your time, wouldn't it? And we all need that sort of yin and yang balance. Um, you can't just work, work, work all the time. You can spend more of your time instead of working for stuff that's going to make you money to use some of that time to give it away well. There's no point in living, frankly, if you don't have any spare time. And are there any things that you would have done differently vis-a-vis -vis the Alchemy Foundation and your philanthropy, Richard? Um... Yes, I would have asked more people. I wish there had been Rachel back then. I mean, she'd only been three, so there wouldn't have been much point in asking her. But I wish there had been the equivalent of Rachel back then um, because we, we didn't know enough. We had a certain amount of zeal that we wanted to give some stuff away and be helpful. But to begin with, we weren't helpful in the right places. We weren't effective enough. And helpful advice from experienced people would have been good early on. Do you think that your charitable giving is going to change in the future, Richard? Do you feel that there are different focuses, different directions? The focus more and more has been on the alchemist scheme just because that is so simple. It's such a simple equation that you pay for a fundraiser where a fundraiser might not be, and that fundraiser raises lots of money for the charity. That, that works really well. You get involved with the people, you get to know them, and that's, that's a really interesting thing to do. And we do more and more of that, and I'm afraid less and less of small donations to people we've never heard of. 
I mean, Rachel, is that a common theme with some of the other people that you're working with at the Coots Institute? Yeah, I think that sense of um, philanthropy becomes really rewarding when you develop a focus that means something to you and that you have some skin in the game. You've got some knowledge of that sector and, and can add value rather than just feeling like you're a walking checkbook. Um, but I also worry that, you know, some people become paralysed when they start because they think they have to have this perfect plan and they have to have done all this research and just start, you know, get the ball rolling, um, take advice, you know, talk talk to your bank or, or other professional advisors, talk to your friends, talk to peers, find some of the great networks for, for giving that are out there and start and learn by doing. I mean, Trevor Pears, who is a fantastic philanthropist, has often said that you can't do philanthropy from behind a desk. You know, you have to get out there and meet people and talk to them and, and learn about what you're doing. And over time, you will find that perhaps you follow a path that you weren't expecting to at the beginning because you found some great organisations that are really impactful or, you know, you will develop a focus that then means it's easier to say no to the things that that don't fit what you want to do and, and you feel less bad about that. Um, so don't feel you have to go it alone or, or reinvent the wheel. There are lots of people out there to talk to to help you find the thing that will really, you know, make the lights go on. Richard, you've given us some wonderful insights into your views on charitable giving. Do you think there's any such thing as bad charity? I mean, there are certain charities we don't support, but that's 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 okay. That's we make those decisions. I think there are very few rip-off charities. As as Rachel just said, the more you get involved, as Trevor Pears, bless him, said, you can't do it from behind a desk. I mean, my, my greatest joy is the Orpheus Centre, where I go in there and help young autistic people, young blind people, young disabled people write songs. I don't write the songs for them. I sit there and say, that's a good idea. And then these young people, 18 or 19, who have been thought of as problems all their lives, get up on a stage and sing their songs. And audiences say, I didn't know they could do that. And they feel good about themselves. And after three years of that, they go off and live independently in the community and their lives are changed. That's a really nice thing to be part of. And it's, yeah, it's almost no effort on my part at all. It's just using a little bit of what I've learned over the years. It's been wonderful talking to you, Richard Stilgo. Thank you so much. Rachel Harrington, thank you as well. It has been so encouraging to hear there are some really great things being done out there, especially when times are as challenging as they are today. If you'd like more information on any of the topics covered today, you can email investmentqueries at coots.com. And the coots.com website also has a host of information worth checking out. What a great way to kick off this brand new series of Expect Better. We would love you to rate and review this podcast. And please do subscribe. As in the next episode, we will be tackling the F word, family, with Amanda East, a busy mum of three, a qualified engineer, a successful businesswoman who also runs a charitable trust. She'll be joining me to discuss how to talk about money with children. It did seem a bit mad to, you know, nurture these children all through their childhood and through their education and everything, and then to not educate them in finance seemed a bit bonkers. It's not one to be missed. <laughs> <laughs>